Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you today. What is it? The 4th of November, 2022. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Well, I got to kick off with what we've been covering in intensively in the hub the last couple of days. Um, labor unrest falls on Canada's biggest province, Ontario. Um, uh, school Important school boards like the Toronto District Board shut down. Um, the notwithstanding clause uh, written into legislation to, uh, in a sense, call off this strike before it even happened. Um, Sean, let me come to you first. Maybe what we can do is in service of our listeners here is go a little bit meta. And I don't mean into the metaverse with Mark Zuckerberg and his plunging stock price. Boy, guys, you should check that out. No, I'm talking about just what is going on here? Why suddenly are we seeing, Sean, in the context of what might have been in the past, a fairly run-of-the-mill labor negotiation dispute suddenly uh, the Constitution being debated, the notwithstanding clause being invoked. It just seems to me I'm just trying, I'm struggling a bit to understand the why here. Can you help? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of share in some ways um, the, the sense of destabilization that you're talking about. You know, we started the week um, thinking it was going to be the fall economic statement that was driving the news. And here by the end of the week, we have a decision on the part of the Ford government that I think may define um, its four-year term because it has set in motion uh, I, you know, what was probably already going to be a pretty acrimonious relationship with the public sector unions, um, but it's taken it to the next level. Um, just a couple of quick points uh, on, I think, what's behind this. The, the first is one can't help but think that uh, the determination on the part of the Ford government to ensure that school isn't again disrupted um, by these labor action reflects a kind of implicit recognition that it screwed up in the pandemic and kept schools closed longer than virtually anywhere else in North America and across partly large parts of, of the Western world. They know that um, not only did it have uh, a negative effects in terms of learning loss, but that it really um, provoked parents. Uh, and I, I, I think they don't wanna go back down that road. The second thing is um, this labor negotiation in relative terms is pretty small. Uh, listeners will probably know it's limited to uh, educational assistance and janitorial staff. I think it re represents something like 55,000 workers. And it, it seems to me, whatever one thinks about this, um, the, the, the position that the Ford government has taken is directed in large part towards the teachers um, who are much larger and much more powerful. And I think the, the sense was if the government didn't take a, a firm position against this relatively small union, um, it, it, uh, it would open the door to you know, being rolled over um, by the teachers unions down the road. So uh, it's a long way of saying 
uh, you know, the Ford government, either knowingly or unknowingly, has staked out a position here, which, I, as I said earlier, Rudyard Institute, I think will really come to define um, its four-year mandate so early into it. Stuart, let's come to you and talk about the notwithstanding clause and that element of this. I mean, look, I think there's all kinds of reasons I've been on this show ad nauseum about, you know, and the need for some kind of fiscal restraint, both to slow the inflationary forces in our society, but also just to acknowledge the incredible indebtedness of our, our subnational governments. At the same time, Stuart, though, I struggle a bit, you know, one of the pernicious things about inflation is that it it destroys your purchasing power. So these workers have, like all of us, lost in the last year about 8% of their purchasing power. And it's not that they've just lost it this year, you know, barring some Great Depression style event where we have deflation, many of us, all of us have lost that 8% next year, the year after that, the year after that, it's gone forever. So now you're saying to people, many of them in this case, the government you know, acknowledges are making under $45,000 a year who arguably are providing a pretty essential service. You know, these teachers assistants working with kids with autism and learning disabilities. I mean, what's more important than that? And you're saying to them in, we're going to give you 2.5%. So we're going to give you something that is not even half the rate of inflation. It's uh, a little more than a, a quarter of the rate of inflation. And what you're just going to have to accept that this year, next year, and for the rest of your career, we're not going to catch you up to inflation. You're going to pay more for your groceries, more for your gas, more for your own kids after school, whatever it may be. We're not providing you with a cost of living adjustment. I mean, where, I, where's the fairness in that, to be honest? Like, regardless of the constitutional debates and the fiscal debates at the end of the day, I don't know. I'm sympathetic to this idea that Inflation is something that we're all going through together. And like, how can you just say to people, guess what? You're poor permanently. <laughs> Suck it up. Yeah, I think the political analysis that went into this decision, I would just kill to be a fly on the wall in that room when they discussed this, because I there are so many elements to this. And I'm a parent of a six-year-old and a two-year-old. And the six-year-old's home today for a PD day. So my, my workday is a little crappier than it would be otherwise. It's slightly more fun. Um, and I think that's what a lot of parents are dealing with is that we all had this over the pandemic and we're all like, pretty tired of that. And I, I, I think there is a fairness element to it, but I would imagine that like the overarching feeling of most parents is just don't let anything like this happen. And I have a particular sympathy for the workers that are dealing with this because you know when we uh when you bring your child to kindergarten in ontario there's early child care workers there who don't make as much as teachers um they almost make the same as daycare workers and there you feel a little bit of guilt about that you know the ratios involved in daycare and early school are such that as a parent you pay a lot of money but the math doesn't really work out to pay these people much more than just a little bit above minimum wage. And, you know, you feel about, you know, a certain level of guilt about that. And I would imagine that's part of the analysis here too. Um, I think part of the interesting thing here too is the disposition of the Ford government, because um, this is a government that we've sort of, I think we've probably made fun of them on this podcast. We've certainly made fun of them in private discussion for just backing down on everything. And, you know, in their first term, they 
would get into a little bit of controversy. It happened numerous times. And then they would say, you know what, forget it. We're not going to do that. So they would incur all of the political issues involved with it. And then they wouldn't even get to do the thing they wanted to do. And now getting into this second term, they're going after private delivery and healthcare. Uh, they've picked this fight with the notwithstanding clause with uh these uh, education workers and presumably teachers down the road. And, you know, we were joking earlier about when the, the back down might happen, but maybe this is a new uh, government we're looking at. Maybe this is new people behind the scenes and maybe a new Doug Ford. Um, so I think for me, that's the thing I'm watching is, uh, are they really picking a fight here? And does that tell us something about how they see the provincial finances going down the road? Can I just say, guys, you know, one of the reasons I love being part of this podcast is, um, you know, we're, we're prepared to live with nuance. Um, you know, we won't just give people hot takes, you know, in, in search of downloads or clicks or whatever. Uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg, uh, someone, a writer who I, who I like a lot, often says that conservatism at its root is comfort with contradiction. And I think it's a good way to think about this issue, that there are a series of you know, seemingly contradictory yet true propositions going on. Yes, it's it's the notwithstanding clause is a completely legitimate constitutional tool. Yes, uh, the right to strike ought to be something that all things being equal ought to be protected. Yes, the 11.5% um, salary increase requested by the union is unreasonable. Yes, there's room for negotiation at something approximating a fair increase in light of inflation and on and on and on. And it, it seems to me, one of the things I hated about um, the public conversation about this issue in recent days is there's a tendency on for people to be kind of forced into accepting one set of propositions because they're in support of the union or another set of propositions because they're in favor of the government. And the truth is this is kind of messy. And, um, and I think in a way there's a sort of pox on everyone's house. The government, as Brian Dykema set out in a piece for us at the hub this week, Acted, acted too precipitously in terms of walking away from negotiation table. On the other hand, you know, it seems pretty obvious that not just QP, but all of the unions were kind of geared up for a fight with the Ford government, who they see uh, fairly or unfairly as, uh, you know, something of a, a kind of political enemy. And so in some ways, it's sort of inevitable that we got here. Um, but I, I think it looks bad on all parties involved um, that, We've created, I think, what is approaching a kind of political and constitutional crisis yeah. um, uh, in the province well, that's, of Ontario. Well, that's where I wanted to go with it next, because, you know, there's a there's a rule of law aspect to this. You know, we've just been listening to these uh, hearings in Ottawa on the Emergencies Act. And now you're going to have, uh, in a sense, thousands, uh, tens of thousands of people on strike today, which you can say, absolutely, um, they could or should be on strike to oppose what uh, is demonstrably, I think, an unfair deal, okay? In the context of 8% inflation or whatever we're at, I think it's an unfair deal. But they are now, Stuart, you know, walking away from, once again, the rule of law. The, the, the legislature has legislated, and we're now going to be into this Mexican standoff of are they going to be subject, these individual workers, to $4,000 fines per day? per person. Um, the union, I believe, could be fined, I think it's in the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars per day. And then the situation where these workers um, cannot, for the period of four years, go before the courts to try to have their, uh, in a sense, collective bargaining rights 
restored, nor has the government suggested, maybe as it should for reasons of fiscal probity, any uh, inclination or interest or path forward in terms of an arbitrated you know, settlement um, to be imposed upon the government and the workers, nor are they going to make the teachers into an essential service, which then would also uh, create a kind of enforced arbitration. So I just put this all together, Stuart, and I just, there is a, um, as Sean's right, like a hard edge to this moment that we're in where people's traditional rights have been, you know, we can dispute and we've had some great commentary in the hub this week about whether exclusive rights to collective bargaining should have been, you know, put into the charter or not. But at the end of the day, what's happening right now is some pretty rough stuff. Like people are getting stripped of rights. People aren't getting, uh, you know, caught up in any way for inflation that frankly they didn't cause. Some guy called Tiff Mac on the Bank of Canada said, you know, interest rates are going to be low for a long, long time. That really hasn't turned out so well. So I don't know, Stuart, I just, I worry here. It's just, it feels ugly. It feels like like Canada and Ontario at this moment is in a is in a moment of of elbows up where stuff could break and who's putting Humpty Dumpty back together again? Yeah, I think this might have been a strategic error by the Ford government because when you think about there, you know, there is maybe a case to be made that they wanted this fight. Um, maybe this is for show, but I would say if you were looking to solve the problem, there's a strategic error in that. It was such a big move this week that it backed the union into a corner and they basically had to go to 10 out of 10 in response. Otherwise, they would look feckless. And I, I, you know, I don't as much as I feel so bad for the parents who are caught up in all this and the kids. Let's not forget there's kids involved um, in these schools. I don't I don't see what else they could have done. It kind of required a big response from the union. And I you know, you get into the world of wildcat strikes and brother, you mentioned the, the convoy inquiry going on right now. And I've, I really felt like, I'm not sure that this hypothesis is true yet, but I think it's worth sort of evaluating as we go. When we were living during the pandemic, there were all kinds of rules. Many of them didn't make any sense. And I think a lot of us got used to just sort of obeying the ones that we thought made sense. And, you know, if you needed grandma to come over and watch the kids you just did that if grandma was cool about doing that or if you needed to go out to the shops after curfew in Quebec you probably just did that Um, I think this sort of casual uh, rule breaking just getting used to not listening to the authorities or starting to understand that the authorities actually didn't know what they were talking about most of the time is it's not good for society and you know we could look at this as some kind of pandemic thing that has blown over. Um, and maybe that is broadly the case, but I think we're still seeing this. There's a mistrust of- But there's another side to that and get Sean to come in on this. It's the authorities are willing to go to 10 on the dial too. Like they're willing to say, no kids are allowed on playgrounds in the province of Ontario. <laughs> you know, Remember that high watermark of scientific uh, objectivity and insight. Now they're saying, you know what? We're not even gonna let this get to the point where we're overturning a court ruling, we're going to act so preemptively to strip these people of their uh, of a well-understood, well-socialized right to, you know, collectively bargain. And they can't go in front of the courts for four years. And there's no mechanism for them to seek any address. 
and they're going to accept, you know, 1.5% or 2.5%, depending on whether they make less or more than $45,000 a year. Sean, you know, what the heck? I mean, that to me, again, seems like a continuation of the pandemic and this idea that government is this 850 pound gorilla that can just occasionally get off the fence and just pound you if it so chooses. Yeah. Where was this commitment to keeping the schools open in Ontario for the past two years? There's a something of cognitive dissonance going on between the premier and his education minister, Stephen Lecce. I, I, I agree with uh, everything that's been said here. I, I think, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I think schools ought to be open full stop. Um, on, on the other hand, I think the government has acted precipitously and created a scenario where not only do I not see how this particular case resolves itself. I think we've set ourselves up for really hot labor relations in the province for the next four years, teachers, nurses, you know, down the line. Um, and, and maybe at the risk of being too political here or, or, or too much kind of punditry, it also undermines or erodes the efforts that this particular government and party have pursued in terms of building relationships in the world of labor. I, I note, for instance, that the five or six private sector unions that endorsed the progressive conservatives just months ago in the Ontario election have come out criticizing them here. You know, it, 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 um, it really is, it, you know, it seems to me a, a, a lose, 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 um, lose for parents, students, the government and the unions. Okay, well, let's end start by some rank uh, speculation on this section of the show. Where does this go from here? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, today's Friday, but we've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, next week. Um, does the union do this for a couple of days to make a point and then backs down? Um, let's go around the horn quickly and just see what people think uh, is going to happen here. How does this, if ever, get brought to some kind of resolution? Luckily, I'm wearing headphones and my six-year-old didn't hear you mention the playground debacle of last year because she still has a pretty good rant about that. And I wonder how many other people have retained that memory. Uh, that took one day for Doug Ford to back down. Um, and I think, you know, we're probably going to go through mid next week. There will be sort of a mutual backing down. At least that's what I hope. I agree. I, I, if I if I was betting, I would say that we end up with some kind of wage settlement um, that's somewhere between what the union has sought and where the government has been. And, and actually, it'll be the government that caves on this because, um, you know, whether or not they're in the kind of right political position today, a week from now, um, people are going to be really pissed. Uh, and I think the experience we have with the Ford government is that they're responsive to popular opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I think the intensity is all with the union. I mean, this is existential for them, right or wrong. Again, you can, you know, dispute uh, unions and their um, effectiveness or their uh, contributions to inflation, which could be real if there's a five or six percent wage settlement to split the thing midway. That's the wage price spiral that the central bank is freaked out about, um, and that would cause inflation to be entrenched and that would require higher interest rates for longer, uh, you know, further crushing our housing. Um, so I guess I feel like it's we're in one of these moments where it's unfortunately just like a series of bad options. My final comment would be it does seem interesting, though, that governments seem willing to spend money on all kinds of stuff lately. We, we're happy to run massive multi-billion dollar deficits. We've just federally had a financial update. We've just forgiven all interest on student loans. So you know, 
why are why are we not spending money to find a halfway midpoint deal with this union? Like, why are we having this fight, whereas we're not having all kinds of other maybe fights that we should have had about the affordability of $10 a day daycare or the affordability of a national uh, dental plan or pharma plans or healthcare, you know, safe for a generation, all these kind of platitudes that come out of our political class. It just seems as if we we get religion, we get uh, fiscal probity selectively. Um, I don't know. Let's, let's break here. We're not going to answer any of these questions. We're just going to continue to debate them, and we will do that on the Hub and in our pages each and every day. So check it out, www thehub.ca, lots of great reporting and commentary on uh, this important issue. We're going to take a quick break. Back on the other side, those little Twitter blue birds are, I don't know, flapping, squawking. They're doing something. A new guy has arrived in town, the world's richest man, and he's put Twitter in a stress position. Uh, we're going to unpack it for you. What the heck does this mean? What is Elon Musk doing? The future of Twitter. Uh, and the fate of those blue birds right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was... Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Okay, guys, we are back here on the Friday Roundtable at The Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-at-chief. Guys, let's go to a fun topic, which we have to discuss just because it's gotten so zany and crazy this week. And that is Elon Musk. Um, I don't know, just like, I wouldn't say wading into Twitter. It's like he's throwing hand grenades into the $55 billion company uh, that he has purchased. Uh, Stuart, what the heck's going on here? Um, is Elon unhinged? Is this like, I don't know, some weird form of like buyer's regret where he knows that he's completely overpaid for this asset based on how Meta and all the other platforms have Snap have just lost like half of their market value in the time since he, uh, you know, put in his bid for Twitter. I, I just, I don't understand the business case. I don't understand, I don't even understand the messaging and the PR. I mean, isn't this a guy who's supposed to be launching rockets into orbit? And uh, I don't know, he's got this small company called Tesla. Have you heard of that? Yeah, it's um, one of the, so the big thing actually that I think is going on here is that you're right. It's not quite buyer's remorse. It's not just psychological. It's that he has a lot of debt um, to purchase Twitter. So there's like $12 billion in loans that require immediate cash flow from Twitter. Um, and I kind of agree with you. It's hard to imagine how you make money off of Twitter. Um, it, it could be making people pay. He's introduced this, you know, blue check fee that may come down. Uh, I have one of those blue checks, which would you pay? 
Would you pay no. eight bucks a month <laughs> like, or 10, 10, 10 Canadian? Well, let's face it, the loony is falling. As if we there call. were real benefits, maybe, but I don't really tweet a lot. And it, the reason I got the blue check is because some nice person at the Image Journal put my name on a list and said, we'll do this for you. And I said, oh, cool, thanks. And I don't really see any benefits from it that I know of anyways. Um, so I think there's that interesting side of it, but there is also the interesting sort of like um, political, social fact, which is that there is this, idea, um, I think this sort of became sort of a pandemic thing where, you know, there was arguments about journalists trusting authority a little too much and maybe leaning a little too left. And that becomes apparent on Twitter because they're always blurting out their opinions. Um, and then the blue check trope kind of started. And I think it's kind of snowballed into this idea that there's a real kind of class war between the blue checks and the non-blue checks. Um, it's nothing I've really ever been involved in because I'm such so bad at Twitter. <laughs> it's never really been in my wheelhouse. What's your take on this, Sean? Because like, again, here's a guy who, um, you know, got a pretty full plate. Um, and yet he's trolling uh, AOC um, about, you know, the price of sweaters on her, her website. Um, it just, it, it strikes me like as a little bit deranged, like I'm not a Tesla shareholder. But if I was, I'd be a little uh, kind of concerned here that, you know, our genius, our Willy Wonka, the 21st century is not focused on how to put more electric batteries in more electric cars. He's more concerned about, um, you know, turf wars and twit wars with his uh, center left uh, detractors. Yeah, I, I, I can't fully understand, nor am I prepared to defend um, everything he's done in recent days. Um, but for me, he's sort of earned the benefit of the doubt. Um, Russ Roberts, uh, an economist who we had on Hub Dialogues a couple of weeks ago, that I would just, if I can digress for a second, encourage people to check out that episode. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, he tweeted a couple of days ago that, uh, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you should take for granted that the guy who spent $44 billion on this company has a pretty good sense of his personal self-interest. Um, and I'm kind of inclined to, to start from that presumption for at least for now. Um, you know, I, I, I'm holding out hope that he does have a plan to monetize Twitter and um, produce a return on investment and prove all his detractors wrong. And if that happens, you know, we'll come back to this episode and I'll say, I told you so. Uh, if it doesn't happen, we'll do our best to somehow lose the audio. Um, <laughs> the second thing I will say, though, I, I on this issue of the blue check mark and verification, um, you know, it seems to me there are two competing views about its purpose. The, the first is that it's designed to signal to users who people, who experts are, who people or authority are, who to trust, so to speak. And I think what Musk and people like David Sachs, who are in his orbit, are saying is, well, actually, it's a status symbol. Um, and people will be prepared to pay for it because it connotes some kind of status. And Stuart saying that's not the case for him. And knowing Stuart, I believe that. But when you see the reaction of some other people, and I vote name names, you, who are aghast at the idea that they have to pay uh, for this. I, I, I noted, for instance, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Mike McCall, said, you know, I, uh, uh, I provide free content, terrific content to my 850,000 uh, followers. They should be paying me. I shouldn't be paying them. It does give you a sense of how much people's identity and status have been kind of wrapped up on this. So I'm not sure it's a good business idea, 
but I, I can't help but admit that I've enjoyed past couple of days, some of these blue checkmark folks uh, twisting themselves into knots uh, in, in response to this announcement. Yeah. I mean, but it, McFaul does bring up an interesting point is that Twitter, and I've often thought of this too, like, why am I tweeting here? Like, um, yes, uh, there's the little dopamine response and I appreciate that. But it's more like, if I'm a YouTube creator, uh, you know, YouTube is paying me. They're, I'm sharing in the monetization of my content. Uh, Facebook does a lot of that. Uh, you know, Instagram too. It, Twitter is this weird thing where it has up to this point, Stuart, kind of wrapped itself in the, in the idea that it is a, a news and information ecosystem that is somehow, uh, now you can dispute it or not, but it's the branding and the position at this point was somehow oriented towards a series of goals less grubby than YouTube, you know, Facebook, uh, Snapchat. Uh, so what does that mean for the future sort of your profession? Because journalists really have seen Twitter as something more than just you know, uh, social media messaging platform. They've they've seen it as somehow a place. Correct me if I'm wrong. Where there is some arbitration of the truth. You know, the traditional functions that we had looked for previously in mainstream media. Yeah. I so if I were doing sort of a ranking of the reasons, the dopamine hit I think is <laughs> very highly up there. It's probably number one by a long shot. Um, and I, you know, I would always tell journalists, and I wouldn't say get off Twitter, but I would say, look, I have found being off Twitter most of the day helps me. It helps me think about things. It means I'm not sort of just joining in the group think. Howard Anglin wrote this in his piece about the notwithstanding clause, that everyone seemed to have the same lines on the notwithstanding clause. And that's because all the journalists are reading the same two experts who are usually like center left kind of establishment types. And then they they need to bone up quickly because journalists deal with a new topic every day. And so it creates this kind of monoculture and then you can kind of distinguish yourself if you stay away from that. Um, but people would always tell me it's so vital for networking. It's so vital, vital for building my brand. I need it to be relevant in journalism these days. I personally probably did more harm to my career when I was tweeting a lot than, <laughs> than benefits, um, but I can see how that, that works. And it kind of runs against the argument though that we're hearing um, against this monetization scheme, which is that they see no benefit from Twitter. They're the ones providing content, but I think there are pretty clear career benefits for you know, at least certain journalists, some who use it really well or who just spend all day on it, providing content and DMing and talking to people. So I think that people, if they think about this rationally in terms of their career and how the benefits affect them, probably they'll pony up five to $8 a month. I'll just say two quick things. First of all, on that particular point, I couldn't agree more. Think of that one like high school teacher in Ontario that turned himself into a biostatistician in the middle of the pandemic and built up a following of 99,000 followers and was suddenly, you know, a credible voice in the media through nothing more than just building a, a, a Twitter profile. So I, I think, you know, for better or for worse, oftentimes for worse, it's had that effect. And I think um, media personalities and others who who dismiss that are, are kidding themselves. The second thing I'll say though, notwithstanding that comment, I, I'll make a, a, a defense of Twitter. I, you know, uh, guys, I, 
you, you often hear that when Brian Mulroney was prime minister, he used to read five newspapers a day, the, the hard copy newspapers. Just think how inefficient that was. Um, on Twitter, I have, you know, access to a kind of world of thinkers um, and that's curated by me, that's not constrained by the so-called gatekeepers of the editorial page. I have access to a combination of popular writing and academic scholarship, and I can all, it's all at the kind of end of my fingertips on my, on my phone. I don't think there's any question that I'm smarter, wiser, more informed um, because of, of Twitter curating that kind of information and analysis for me. And if it means I have to put up with some jerks sometimes, I'll say just for me personally, that trade-off has, has been worth it. I'm, I'm kind of long on Twitter um, and, and not just because Musk uh, has, has gotten involved. Mm -hmm. Well, I just, I, I just don't see how it's worth $44 billion. And I guess what I worry about is, you know, if there now is a push, as Stuart said, because of significant debt servicing costs to, quote, monetize the platform, it could end up becoming something very different from what it is right now. And, it, you know, the instrumentality of the owner matters. Um, so up until this point, you know, Twitter was held diversely by a, a whole bunch of different companies. Uh, it frankly struggled um, as a, a business in terms of, of profitability and growth relative to its other social media peers. I don't think that's going to change. I think those are just, you know, um, wired into Twitter at this point. So then you have the chaos monkey, uh, as uh, Elon Musk has been described. Uh, I think it's an apt way to think of him. That's, you know, the chaos monkey is a terminology in coding where they, in a sense, create a piece of code and put it into a program to try to destabilize it, to try to kind of stress test it. And this has worked for, for Elon in a variety of ways in a variety of his businesses, but you have to wonder, you know, when this guy, like they all do, hits the Wiley Coyote moment. And we all have in our minds that, uh, you know, Wiley up over the edge of the cliff, uh, spinning his legs frantically in the air, you know, reaching for, um, God, what was his name? What was the rooster that he was chasing? Come on. Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. So, you know, um, I don't know. I'm, I, I worry that this ends badly, that we end up with a much more commercialized, um, chaotic Twitter. And I agree with Sean. It's not an unimportant kind of source of, of information. There's a lot of annoying features to it. But at the end of the day, I think to this point, Twitter has been a net positive to uh, a more informed conversation. And I know people will find that incongruent, maybe with their own experiences and the sense that it's highly politicized and whatever. But uh, I don't know. I worry here, guys, that Twitter could be could be uh, kind of vandalized under the uh, this tutelage, the hands of, um, of uh, Mr. Mr. Musk. Okay, Stuart, tell us quickly as we wrap up the show, what can uh, Hub readers expect um, in their weekly digest uh, tomorrow, Saturday? And then what do you got on deck for early next week? Um, so tomorrow is, if you're listening to this on Friday, then 
tomorrow is daylight savings time. Remember to set your clocks forward on Saturday night, and we'll have a piece on that. Um, we are lucky to have in our orbit the former MPP Jeremy Roberts, who actually introduced a private member's bill um, saying to abolish the time change and put us on daylight time. I'm a huge fan of that. I wrote about mm -hmm. it in Alberta too. Um, we just have to somehow convince New York. I mean, Sean, you're down there. So Sean has to convince <laughs> New York state <laughs> to join the party. Um, and then next week, we're going to start the week with um, some analysis on the fall economic statement and where we stand economically and where we stand in sort of the political landscape um, with the direction of Pierre Polyev and the direction of the liberal government. Nice. And I just want to remember, uh, remind uh, Hub uh, listeners that we have a special two for one deal on right now for the upcoming, it's kind of relevant to what we we're just talking about, the upcoming November 30 monk debate at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto that I'll be moderating on Be It Resolved, Don't Trust the Mainstream Media. We've got Malcolm Gladwell of the New Yorker and uh, Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times arguing in favor of mainstream media against uh, bad boy Matt Taibbi, formerly of the Rolling Stones, now a Rolling Stone magazine, now a Substack sensation, and Douglas Murray from the UK, one of the world's finest debaters in my view. So you've made it to the end of the program, Hub Reader. You can get a two-for-one ticket by going to the Roy Thompson Hall box office or the Monk Debate website and using the promo code hub numeral two numeral four numeral one so hub two four one put that into the promo code once you've selected two tickets in the roy thompson hall box office and we will get you the second one free it's part of our commitment to create opportunities for live places spaces for hub readers to gather together we're going to try to get sean up from new york to join me for a little post uh, monk debate reception for hub readers at Roy Thompson Hall. So we'll even buy you a drink. That is if you're a legal age, Aiden, our intern most certainly is not. So he will be drinking cranberry and soda. But if you are 18 or over, I know Sean likes his beer and uh, I will join him in uh, something frothy on the other side of what should be a very frothy, fun debate. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll do this all again next Friday here at the Hub Roundtable. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.